I'll invite you to turn with me to Psalm 114. So we are taking a break today from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, In case you were unaware, uh, our Regina plant is going through the same passages that we're going through as we work through the Sermon on the Mount. And part of the hope is that when they join us on the first Sunday of each month, then we're in the same text, in the same place. And so uh, there are times, though, where we need to maybe take a break for a Sunday to just make sure we get back on the same, same page. And, uh, and so this is one of those uh, Sundays. It's why we're going to be in Psalm 114. Um, and then we'll return to Matthew 5, verse 17 next week. So Psalm 114 is a psalm that rejoices in the, in, in, in the mighty God who redeems. It is, a, it is a reflection of the great redemption event that we find in the Old Testament, where God redeemed Israel out of slavery and brought them into the promised land. The event that we read just a part of earlier from Exodus 14 and into 15 And this event, this exodus, uh, was not only significant for those Israelites who immediately benefited from it, or even those who generations later were living in the land of promise, but it also serves another purpose of pointing forward to the even greater redemption that God would work for all who are in Christ Jesus So the Exodus provides a type, if you will, of a greater redemption that is to come. And so as we look at this text, even though we are not those who came out of Egypt ourselves, even though few of us, if any, could trace our heritage back to the Israelites or to Judah, nevertheless, uh, this is here for you and for your comfort, as it is glorying in the same God, who has promised to redeem all who are in Christ Jesus, all who have faith in him. And as we consider scripture and what it says about this greater redemption that is in Christ Jesus, we can read about what has already come to pass, what witnesses have seen and declared, the apostles and others, to us. That is, namely, the Son of God coming to earth in human form and and then eventually dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. We can read about his ascension to heaven, even about what he is accomplishing while he is there now as our great high priest interceding for us. But there's also much that awaits us that we don't yet see. We are awaiting the fulfillment of promises, the fulfillment of the completion of our redemption. And we don't see that. It hasn't taken place yet. It's yet to come. We're, We're trusting in this God to keep his word. We take these promises on faith, trusting him. And what this psalm does is teaches you that that faith is not misplaced. This, again, is here for your joy It is here for your comfort. It is here to stir your praise. It is not just celebration for those in the Old Testament who directly benefited from that exodus. This teaches us that the redeeming and all-powerful God is rightly to be trusted and to be feared. 
And so let's read this psalm, and then we will go through it. Psalm 114. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. So again, this is teaching us much about this redeeming God who is all-powerful and rightly to be feared. And as we work through this, our outline is relatively simple. Three points to it. First, the redemption of God, which we see in verses 1 and 2. Then the power of God displayed in verses 3 to 6. And then followed by the fear of God in verses 7 and 8. So the redemption, power, and fear of God. So let's begin with the redemption of God. Immediately here, in verse 1, this psalm takes us back to the Exodus. It says, When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language. Of course, this being a psalm is Hebrew poetry. Originally, its original uh, language, of course, that it was written in is Hebrew. And it's poetry. It's a form of poetry. And one thing worth noting here is that this verse, or this, this chapter, has all throughout it parallelism. So that is to say, every verse has parallelism. So two lines to each verse, and these two lines have, uh, they very clearly correspond to one another. Now, parallelism is common in Hebrew poetry. It's a very broad category in many ways. And there's all kinds of conversations and and arguments about different forms of it and so on. But generally speaking, the two lines in parallelism have some sort of grammatical tie to one another. And the additional line or the second line adds to the first or expands upon the thought that we find in the first line. And together, they round out the picture of what is being said. So this could be... You know, the second line is just bringing a clarification to the first. It could be a simple restatement or repetition with maybe just slightly different words. It could be developing what was said in the first line just a little bit further. Or it can even take the form of a contrast. The two lines parallel each other, but they're contrasting one another. And together, all of this then just clarifies the point that is being made. And as we go through this, I'm not going to draw explicit attention to every place that there's parallelism within this chapter. I I trust you'll notice it as we go. But the the reality is every single verse has it. And I I think you'll see that. But I am going to point it out here, at least in verse 1. So in verse 1, the second line is kind of a repetition of the first, but does give some additional information. So Israel, in the first line clearly corresponds to the house of Jacob in the second line. So if you recall, um, Israel is this nation, but they have their descent from one particular man, Jacob. And Jacob was renamed by God Israel. Uh, You recall, of course, that 
Jacob and his family ended up in Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis. They were brought there by Joseph. You remember the story of that. Uh, That was to escape the famine. They were saved in, in coming to Egypt and living there. And after Jacob and his immediate children died, his descendants continued to live there and they multiplied and they grew. They prospered until Another pharaoh arose who didn't know anything about Joseph and and the people of of Israel, this nation, were then enslaved. So we have this parallel here between Israel and the house of Jacob. But we also have this parallel of Egypt in verse 1 with a people of strange language. That's talking about the same group of people. And so by wording it this way, we're reminded that Israel... Though they had prospered in Egypt, though God had saved them by bringing them into Egypt, this was not, in fact, their home. This was never to be their final destination. In fact, they were foreigners there. They were amongst the people of strange tongue. This was not the land that had been promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and then to Jacob. You remember, of course, when Joseph died, even he, remembering the promises made to his father and his forefathers, told the people that when the Lord brings you up out of Egypt to bring my bones with you and have them buried. And in fact, we read later on, that's exactly what they did. So in this way, the psalmist reminds us that the people of Israel were enslaved in a foreign land that wasn't theirs. That's how it begins, but the focus is not primarily upon that enslavement, but in, in, in what God did for them in bringing them out of that. The remarkable change that took place. And so verse 2 reminded that, again, when Israel went out, verse 2, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. So through the first two verses here, God has not yet been explicitly re- referenced. He's not explicitly been mentioned. But this is surely the one who is referred to here when this pronoun his is used. Jacob became God's sanctuary. Israel, God's dominion. One commentator notes that the psalmist here leaves God somewhat hidden at the beginning of this psalm. And then as the psalm progresses, he works toward a glorious unveiling of the Almighty. So, This reference to his here in verses 1 and 2. Then we'll have some questions posed in verses 5 and 6. What ails you? And ultimately all this leads to verse 7. In which of course we get the answer that it is the Lord. The Lord of all the earth. The God of Jacob. He is the one who is behind all that is going on in this song. This is part of the poetic nature of the song. The poetic nature of it. It's moving from, or toward, I should say, an increased clarity. And again, you see in verse 2 this parallelism. Judah and Israel, and then sanctuary and dominion. So if you recall the events of the Exodus, when Israel was brought out of Egypt, they were brought then to Mount Sinai eventually, where they entered into a formal covenant with God, with the Lord. On Mount Sinai. God, of course, then gave directions for the tabernacle to be built. And then later on, we're jumping ahead here, the temple itself. 
The temple resided in the inheritance of the tribe of Judah. So Judah, one of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, named after one of the sons of Jacob. And this is where God chose to make the temple his holy dwelling. This was God's sanctuary. It is his unique or was his unique and holy dwelling place upon the earth. Of all of the places of earth to establish his sanctuary and his, uh, his temple, he chose Jerusalem in Judah. And of course, the nation as a whole, the entire nation of Israel, was made his dominion. They were a nation over which God ruled, and God gave them his law that was to govern them. He made it known to them. This was totally and completely unique of all the nations in the earth. In Exodus 19.6, thinking back now to Sinai again, the Lord through Moses said to the nation, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Again, this brings together these concepts of dominion and sanctuary or holiness. A kingdom, dominion, of priests, sanctuary, holiness. Uh, a holy nation. So they were made, this people were made God's sanctuary and dominion. And so with just a few strokes of the psalmist's pen, we're brought through many years of God's activity with the nation. From their enslavement in Egypt to Sinai through their wilderness wanderings um, to the conquering of Canaan and the establishment of his sanctuary in Judah. And, and he'll continue to refer to these events as we go through the psalm in verses 5 and 6 and again in, verses eight, in verse 8. This is the great redemption act of God that we find in the Old Testament. And yet as we consider the Old Testament as a whole, we know that the people continued to be stubborn. Even after being brought out of Egypt, we read about it. They hadn't even gotten very far and they were like, we should just have gone, we should go back. Better to die there than here. And, and this um, sadly did not change. You've read through the Old Testament, you, you know this. They were a stubborn and stiff-necked people. They did not live up to their holy calling. And they were eventually sent into exile. The Old Covenant curses were brought about upon them. Throughout their history, God sent to the people prophets, his mouthpiece, if you will. And they called the nation to repent. They pointed out their sin. They called them back to remember the covenant that God had made with their fathers. But also along the way, they prophesied. They, pointed, they prophesied pointing forward. They were predicting a future event that would take place that would actually solve this continual stubbornness of the heart. The prophets pointed forward to a greater exodus that would come. When they talked about this future salvation that would come, often you find in the Old Testament imagery that is drawn from the exodus event to talk about this yet future thing that God is going to do. So there's examples of this throughout the Old Testament, but Isaiah is one place where we find this quite often. When Isaiah prophesied about God returning, uh, bringing Judah back from Babylonian exile that he had sent them into, 
He described it as God making a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. That's in chapter 43. Moreover, the redemption that Isaiah saw throughout Isaiah and prophesied about and preached about, it was much more than just a physical return from Babylon into the land of Judea. But he prophesied and foresaw a spiritual return that wasn't just for this group of people, the Jews, but it was for many nations. He saw good news would be proclaimed to all the ends of the earth. Furthermore, this redemption would climax not simply even in just a return to this land of Judah, but it would climax in the new creation, the new heavens and new earth. This is a much greater event that Isaiah was foreseeing that would come to pass. And often he uses and and, and borrows this language of the Exodus to talk about a greater event that would occur, a greater redemption. In the New Testament, we find this is revealed even more clearly to us. Hebrews, for example, the book of Hebrews, reveals that the redemption of Israel from Egypt and into the promised land was not ultimate. Spectacular as it was, important as it was for the people who were brought out of that slavery for that nation. Even so, there was something greater. Hebrews 4 tells us that Joshua, who you recall, led the people, the nation after Moses' death, into the promised land to conquer it. Nevertheless, Hebrews 4 tells us Joshua didn't actually lead the people into an ultimate rest when they crossed the Jordan River into Canaan, but there was a greater rest that was still to come. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham was looking for a heavenly city beyond that of even earthly Canaan. We're also told in that same chapter that none of the saints of the Old Testament received the fullness of what God had promised them because God was always intending something that the author of Hebrews tells us was better than the earthly Canaan. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. There was always a greater exodus to come which would end in the new creation with people being in it from every tribe, nation, and tongue, being made perfect together into one body, into one holy nation. Again, the promise to Abraham, you recall, was that through his, this this nation that God would create through the line of Abraham would come blessing to all nations of the earth. And of course, ultimately, we know from the New Testament very clearly that this was all pointing to the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, which, of course, is not an exodus merely from a physical slavery to an earthly enemy or master, but is a spiritual exodus from a spiritual enslavement to sin and death which carries with it not just temporal consequences and temporal significance to our earthly lives, but eternal consequences. And of course, this exodus, this redemption is secured by the eternal Son of God who came to earth as a man, who was indeed born as a Jew from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, 
And he came to redeem sinners from Israel, from the tribe of Judah, Samaria, and from the ends of the earth. To redeem such people, sinners, lost in darkness, calling them out of that darkness into his kingdom of light. And he has established the new covenant, greater than the covenant established with Moses and the nation of Israel at Sinai. A covenant which every person whom the Lord draws to himself is a part of. 1 Peter 2.9 says that it is those who believe in Christ Jesus who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You hear that language of Exodus 19 there, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And so it is those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who have now received this redemption. Again, as I said, believers are in this new covenant with God. And God's spirit now resides within the church, within Christians. We are his sanctuary. We are are his temple. And we are in his dominion. We are under his rule and reign. We enter into the kingdom of God through faith. And one day, all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will enter into the greater promised land, the greater Canaan, the new heavens and new earth, where eternal rest will be ours as redemption reaches its final and completed step. And yet these promises of the future that I'm speaking about are things, again, that we cannot see with our eyes. We cannot look out across a literal river and see a land with physical eyes. But God has given us many examples of his grace and majesty and power to show us that he can and will keep his word in these things. And as you, again, look at this psalm and recall the events of Israel's redemption, it is right, I'll say necessary, that you don't just marvel at that thing that God did in the past for a, a nation long ago, but rather to see in this the faithfulness of your God to keep all that he says he will keep, to be true to his word, to act in faithfulness to his promises and to his covenant. He is the God who redeems. He has shown it And he will perform it. He will keep his word. He has performed redemption for Israel from Egypt. And we trust he is the God who will truly and eternally redeem all who trust in Christ. But let's let's carry on to verse 3. The power of God. Second point of the outline. The power of God. What can stop the Almighty from doing what he intends? What will stop him? Look at verse 3. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. Again, we see in this the parallelism. We have the sea looking and fleeing at the start of verse 3. And then the Jordan turning back. The sea, of course, is referring to the Red Sea, which Israel walked through 
when God parted the waters for them when they were being pursued by the Egyptian army, by Pharaoh's army, which we read earlier. They go through. And then when the Egyptians decide we're going to pursue them into the water, their wheels of chariots begin to get clogged. And then God says to Moses, wave your hand over the seas and it'll return to normal. And it did. And it wipes out this army. Then this says, the second line, the Jordan turned back. So of course, you remember when the people were about to enter now. So we fast forward through the wandering through the wilderness. Now to the nation of Israel, Moses is gone. The whole first generation is gone. And now the people stand on the east side of the Jordan, the banks of the Jordan River. And they are flowing and they need to cross over into the land that God had promised. And God performs a similar miracle to what he did at the Red Sea. You read about this in Joshua chapter 3. The priests carry the Ark of the Covenant into the water of the Jordan River. And when they step into it, it tells us that the water stopped flowing and stood in a heap. The land dry, Moses, or, or I should say, sorry, Joshua and the nation Crossover. When they get to the other side, the waters begin to flow. That's what this is referring to. The Jordan and the sea that looked and fled. Poetic language, fleeing, running away, turning back. And it says in verse 4 that the mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. This is poetic reference in all likelihood to Sinai itself. So in Exodus 19, verse 18, we read there that when the Lord descended upon Sinai to form this covenant with the people of Israel, we're told that the mountain itself, Sinai, trembled greatly when the Lord descended upon it. You remember the smoke, the terror of the people. The imagery of mountains shaking before God and getting out of the way when he appears on behalf of his people is common, pretty common language in the Old Testament. We see in other places, Judges chapter 5 is one place, verses 4 and 5. This is from the song of Deborah and Barak, if you remember that story. It says, they sing this song. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. And then in verse 5, the psalmist takes up something of a taunt here. He says, What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills, like lambs? So the psalmist, after saying this is what happens, he now turns and addresses the sea and addresses the mountains and the Jordan River, asking them, what's gotten into you? What's wrong with you? What's going on here that you flee in this way, that you behave this way? What is it that would cause these usually stable and consistent elements of nature to suddenly act in this manner? And of course, we know the answer, which will become plain in verse 7, is it is the presence of Almighty God. That causes this. The Creator has arrived in a unique way. 
And so the usual laws of nature by which water flows is suspended and overturned. Gladly must the waters give way when the Lord decides it is to be so. These great mountains, majestic hills, so immovable before man, nevertheless tremble and shake when God descends. Of these verses here, Derek Kidner in his commentary says, these verses are flaunting the Lord's ascendancy over his world. Mountains are intimidating, I think so. They command a certain respect. If you want to wander out and play in the mountains and you don't have some respect, you'll find yourself in trouble in a a great hurry. Even water, likewise. It has always amazed me how water can suddenly render us seemingly quite helpless. It's slowly rising, but, but it's hard to stop it. And yet for the Lord, these elements, these created things, they must make way for him. The Exodus story is not a fiction that is simply meant to teach us a moral lesson, like maybe Greek mythology. The real events that are being talked about here, of the Red Sea being parted, the Jordan River being piled up. Have you ever tried to pile up water before? They reveal to us the power of Almighty God, the one who created all of these things. We recognize, we know, such miracles are not normal. We know that. But they are nevertheless not a problem for our God. They're not the normal course, but they've happened, and they're not difficult for him. So I I ask you this, if these things are so, and you believe that God did these wonderful works in redeeming this nation, oppressed, enslaved, out of Egypt, provided for them in these miraculous ways, brought them into this land he promised, can the God who did these things for Israel, can he save you from your sins? Can he redeem you from the sure penalty that you deserve for your sins? Is this too difficult for him? If you think about what the Bible tells us is yet to come, can God take all of the dead bodies of mankind who have ever lived and died, can he raise them for final judgment? And can he make those bodies of his people who have died to be raised incorruptible and fit for eternity in the new creation? I mean, have you ever wondered about how that is going to work? You, you think about this promise, you know bodies decay. You know there's people who've been obliterated, essentially. It would seem that way through horrific bombs and whatever else has gone on? Can the sea really give up all the dead that is within it? 
In some ways, it can seem fantastical or a fantasy to think, well, that seems like that's going to be pretty difficult. I'm not really sure how that could happen. Can that really happen? And the scriptures are telling you, I think over and over, and I think here, right here in Psalm 114, the answer is yes. This is not a difficult thing for God to do. It's really not. The seas flee when he says it's time. Part of the reason, I think really the reason, we have trouble sometimes with some of these things and you know, the world mocks uh, miracles. That doesn't, that doesn't happen. We all know that doesn't happen. Uh, a resurrection of the dead. You know, what about these people who've, you know, been blown away or lost altogether? We don't, how, how's this going to work? Really, he's going to come and everyone's, how could this possibly be? The problem is we have such a low view and understanding of God. And I've said this many times, but I think, it's, I think it bears repeating That God is not simply like you and me, but just bigger. He's not like you and me, but just a little wiser. Just a little, you know, his muscles are a little bigger. He doesn't actually have muscles like you and I do. He is other than his created world. Which is why for him to, to perform a miracle like stopping waters from flowing downstream is nothing to him. He's so much grander and greater than everything that you and I will ever lay our eyes on prior to laying eyes upon him, whatever exactly that is even going to look like. That's who God is. That's the God of the Bible. What is it to him to keep his word? It is not hard for him to do as he pleases. Of course, God's greatness and power and might is terrifying if one is under his wrath and judgment. But if you are trusting in Christ, this is really, really, this is really good news. For Christ is the almighty God's solution to your problem of sin. This taunting here that we see, what ails you, O.C., what's going on with you? Why are you behaving this way? This reminds me something of what Paul says and writes at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. We looked at this back at, on Resurrection Sunday, back at Easter. The end of 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul taunts death itself because of the certainty of what God will accomplish for those in Christ Jesus because of the certainty of the resurrection of the dead to eternal life, where he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And so again, here in verses 3 to 6, we see again the power of God. But thirdly now, the fear of God. The psalm reaches a climax here. The key to all of this that has so far in the psalm been assumed but not explicitly stated. Again, the question, what ails you? OC, what's, what, what's the explanation for all of this? Answer, verse 7. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. 
It concludes here with a proclamation to the earth. Given the fact that the physical earth does bow when the Lord draws near. Again, this is clear in verses 3 to 6. God arrives. the, The natural elements obey. Given that, I think we should understand this as addressing the inhabitants of the earth. When he says, tremble, O earth, he's addressing the people of the earth. It is a command and a summons to prostrate yourself before the Almighty. The Lord is not just the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. He is that. But the command to tremble goes out to all the earth. He is the creator of everyone and everything. God is indeed everywhere. Again, how great is a being that is everywhere. And we can look up and we can look out and we can see the universe that God has created. We can discover something of his awesome power and wisdom as we do that. The God of Jacob is the only God. And so again, this command to tremble is for all people, for all the earth. Man cannot escape God. Man cannot escape the Lord wherever we might try to go. The highest of heights, the lowest of depths. We will not escape him. There's an irony here implicit in this. Creation bows to the will of the Lord. The Lord arrives. Mountains shake. Seas part. And yet man stubbornly refuses him. Man requires this exhortation to tremble before him. Creation, in a sense, natural creation, the world, creation has nothing really to fear from God, whereas men, human beings, as sinners, certainly do have something to fear. We stand by nature under the wrath of God, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, even as those who trust in Christ Jesus, believe in him, receive the covering for your sin, the provision for your sin that God himself has made. Even as those who rejoice in this, those who've been shown great mercy, those who will yet be shown great mercy, it is still appropriate and right for us to tremble before the Lord, to fear God, to remember his awesome power, to remember his greatness, to stand in awe before him. So in this call to tremble, there is certainly a a warning here. But the psalm ends rather, I think, on a note of hopefulness. As we're reminded that the God before whom we are called to tremble, the God whom we are to revere, is the one who, in verse 8, turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Again, we're taken back at the close of this psalm to the Exodus, where, when, where God made water rush forth from rock in the wilderness on multiple occasions at 
Meribah and Massah. You can read those occasions, Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 20, where God provided for his people water flowing from rock. That'd be hard for you. It's not hard for God. And once more here, we are reminded of God's power and of his provision for his people. On both of those occasions, if you remember, there was grumbling throughout the camp, throughout the people of Israel. That complaint that we read about in Exodus chapter 14, where's God now? We're going to die. Better we just have died in Egypt. This was, a, sadly, a recurring theme, this grumbling. And on multiple occasions, the people complained about the Lord's lack of provision. Instead of facing the occasion, their lack, with faith and appealing to the Lord out of that faith, remembering what he has done for them so far, rather they grumbled, they complained. They did the opposite of what this text calls us to. They did not tremble before God. Rather, they thought very low of him. This reminds us that God did still provide for his people, and he will provide for his people. The right response before him, even when facing need or lack, is trembling and fear. It is awe. It is recognizing of whom it is that we are speaking when we speak about God. Remembering of whom it is that we are complaining when we complain. Of who it is we are doubting when we doubt his word. Again, God promises to bring the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land, and you're standing there, and the odds look impossible. The correct response is, the Almighty will keep his word. Likewise, if you look out at the world, or you look out at your own sinfulness, your own struggle, you wonder what would happen to you if X and Y comes to pass, You're facing your sin yet again and distraught and frustrated by it and disgusted by it, upset that you're not upset enough about your sin, whatever it may be, and you begin to wonder, can God really save me? Is he really going to see me through? As you look out and think about an end that the Bible speaks of, a resurrection from the dead, and a twinge comes over you as you hear the mocking of the world, that kind of stuff doesn't happen. That can't happen. When the odds look like they're stacked against you, what's the response? God has made promises, and he is faithful to those promises. God, I have nothing of my own. You are clearly aware of how horrifically sinful I continue to be, but I have nowhere else to turn. You are the only God. You are my only hope. And my hope is that you promise to save sinners who acknowledge their sin and trust in Your son, and that is my only hope. I have nowhere else to turn. And you rest there. That is your hope. That is also your hope on the best of days when you're feeling great about the Lord's work in your life. That's still your only hope, ultimately. That God saves sinners in his grace, and he will keep his word. He will bring you safely home. If you remember, those of you who've read The Pilgrim's Progress, I think most here have. 
The pilgrims, these Christians, are traveling towards this celestial city. And you remember the final obstacle they have to face? It's a river, right? And the river represents death. You think, why a river? There's so many things you could do for death. Why is it? It's imagery drawn from this that we're talking about, from the Exodus, from crossing into Jordan, right? The promised land is on the other side. I've got to get to that other side, the other bank. That's the imagery that Bunyan is using there, that we're we're crossing the Jordan. This is the last obstacle. And on the other side is the celestial city. Though life in a fallen world is filled with trial, it is filled with difficulty. We of all people have a tremendous hope. Remember who it is that is your God. Will he keep his word to you? Is it difficult for him to save you to the uttermost? Is it a hard task for him to raise you to eternal life and to glory with him? He is the Almighty. He is the Almighty who redeems. And he is worthy to be revered. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we worship you. We thank you. You are to be feared. Forgive us where we have such a low view of you. For where we complain, and maybe not directly to you, but we think we're clever because we complain to other people. And yet we know that amounts to the same thing, for you are sovereign over all. You have placed us in the position we are in today. Father, forgive us. Help us to remember your goodness and greatness. Help us to remember the greatness of redemption from sin that even when our physical circumstances are far from ideal we would still joyfully worship and go through our days with joy father work joy in us we know we ought to rejoice forgive our weakness out of which we sin out of which we complain out of which we are so often downcast father i pray you'd lift us up lift up our heads Give us confidence in you. Give us confidence in your promises, in your character, God. That though we can't know you fully, that we finite individuals cannot get our heads around the infinite, that you have nevertheless revealed truth about who you are. Enough that we can trust you. Trust what you have revealed. And much remains that is beyond our grasp but you have proven yourself trustworthy. We can testify to that in your faithfulness to us in our own lives, but you have also revealed it even more clearly in your word. Father, I pray that you would give us faith, strength to believe. I pray that we would fear you and not man. Father, may this all be to our joy now and as we go from this place and remind us all throughout our days as often as we need reminding of who you are and of your greatness. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.